Genesis 4.16. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Erod, and Erod fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Namah. Lamech said to his wives, Adak and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Anna. I was talking with Alice Buving before first service, who did our scripture reading in first service, and we do our little meeting before in the room in there. And she said, well, how are you going to pronounce these names? Uh, because I'd like to um, kind of pronounce them the same way you're going to. And I told her, I said, I'm not. You're going to. I'm actually not going to do that today. So well done, Anna. That was good. Uh, who wants to read chapter five? Look ahead next week. Anybody want to volunteer? We're doing all chapter five next week. So whoever's on scripture reading, be ready. All right. Well, we've been working through our way through the early chapters of Genesis uh, in our foundations uh, section of this series, and I hope it's been helpful because it has been for me. We're, we're getting a big picture view of the Bible's one storyline. You know, when we think about the Bible, many, maybe you grew up in church, maybe you didn't, but, or you heard stories from it, or you went to Sunday school. We have a tendency to think that the Bible is just a bunch of small stories that happened to get put together and pulled over time. Maybe even God even superintended it and brought it together into one book. And we can tend to think like that. Maybe even they're just kind of moral stories. Live like this, do this, or do that. But the Bible's actually one big story. Take a look at this slide coming up that kind of plays out this one story for us. It's one overarching story of creation, of fall, of redemption, and then restoration or recreation, you might say. One big story. And all those little stories, and there are little stories in the Bible, they're part of it, though. They're part of that one bigger story. Well, as we've looked at so far, these early chapters, do you realize that in chapters 1 through 4, kind of where we're at, that half of the big story is in these first few chapters. That's why they're so important. A half of the giant story is just in the first few chapters of the Bible. And these chapters have really, as we've been looking at it, have answered three questions. You can tell they're big questions, too, like this big story. Where do we come from? Well, God's made us out of nothing by his creative power and the word. He designed new creatures and gave them a perfect world to live in and as they image him. And, well, what's wrong with the world? Remember chapter 3? We saw the first parents who represented us choose to eat that forbidden tree, but by doing so, it was more than just a tree. They put themselves in the place of God. That's what's wrong with the world. And then every sin then from that time 
And the sin underneath the sin is our feeble attempt to dethrone God and become our own God. And finally, how has this impacted the world? was the third one we've kind of been talking about. We're sort of there today as well. We saw that impact of the expulsion from the garden, distortion in the first marriage and how they treated each other. And last week, uh, Nick Coleman handled so well that a picture of fratricide, a big brother killing his little brother with misdirected anger intended really for God. And sin is passed on our, as our, to our nature and all of Adam's descendants. It, it's infected the world and everything in it. That means you and I, we have a big problem. That's how it's impacted the world. And we need a solution as well. But we've also seen this. It's also impacted the world this way. We have seen the impact of God responding with incredible grace and mercy and patience to his creatures, covering them with animal skins. Do you remember? Always drawing them out with such gracious questions towards confession. Where are you? What did you do? But we also see, we've seen God's, uh, one of the impacts is God promising the seed. Remember this Genesis 3.15, setting up that grand story of the Bible. I mean, that's, the, that's the thesis right there, setting it up that one would come from the seed of the woman to crush Satan and make everything right and rescue and redeem a people. Adam and Eve, though, as we get to this time, this first family, doesn't it seem that the plan's disrupted? That it's just gone off the rails, you might say? This family's in ruin, so it seems. I mean, Adam and Eve, they've lost two sons by one horrific murder. Not just Abel, but, I mean, Cain now, too. So what happens when Cain walks away, choosing pity and vengeance over repentance and faith? We get a weird story like today in chapter 4. Well, what we really see, though, is humanity. Humanity divides here into two ways. The way of Cain, we're going to call it today, and the way of grace. So this morning, we're going to just explore these two ways. The way of Cain and the way of grace, and a song that defines each way. Okay? So let's take a look at our first one. Have your outline hopefully open and your Bible as well. If you like to take notes, that's what those are for. As we look at this first way, the way of Cain, a culture that falls even as it rises. A culture that falls even as it rises. Uh, we're going to jump back into Cain and Abel's story a bit this morning. That's kind of why I did such an extensive review. But what's so fascinating today about our story is that we see a paradox. Paradox is when two things, they seem to contradict, but they can't, but then you're like, oh, they kind of, they do work out. Uh, and what we're going to see is that there's a, a rise that's taking place in civilization, a culture that's rising, the paradox, even while it's falling. Let's look at what I mean by looking first at the rise of this new culture. Cain is cursed to wander east of Eden, but instead he settles down to build a city, a city really without God. Now, when we say city, it really just means a fortified dwelling of any size because, uh, you know, it doesn't have to be large. I mean, can be probably would be considered a metropolis compared to what we're talking about here with Cain early on. But nonetheless, a, a culture begins to build, begins to rise, but without any reference to God. He has a son, Enoch, his family, different than the Enoch in chapter 5 we'll see next week, but his, his family line begins to expand. And all these names down to Lamech, who we'll get to in a moment, I mean, they seem to be prospering. They're populating is the word. They're growing. 
on the earth. The family seems to be doing well and prospering. And, and even as Cain is cursed, here's what we need to know. His family still images God in some good ways even. Even as we image God, and everybody on the earth does. What do they do? Well, they fill the earth with people and populate, and they begin to produce culture. We're going to talk about them in a minute. God gave this mandate to Adam and Eve. Be fruitful, remember? Um, fill the earth. Subdue it. Garden it was the word. Agriculture it. And, which is really where the word culture comes from. And we use the word culture in the church a lot. I know I use it a lot, so we should define it. What is it? Because we're going to see it in our passage this morning. Here's a quote. Um, and think of the word agriculture. If plowing, tilling, and cultivating comes to mind when you hear the word culture, they should. In its most basic sense, culture refers to what people do with the world. What do we do? We build, we invent, we imagine, we create, we tear down, we replace, we compose, we design, we emphasize, we dismiss, we embellish, we engineer. As Andy Crouch says, here's at its simplest, culture is what human beings make of the world. It's what you and I as humans do with the stuff of this world. And you've all been part of it. You've all made culture and been part of producing our culture. And that's what's begun here in chapter 4. Lamech had these three sons. Uh, Jabal Jewel Say that fast like ten times. Jabal Jewel Tool. These sons, this line begins to make things. Did you catch it in there as Anna read? They begin to make things that even God and his people will make much use of later. We've got our first tent makers here. Uh, God's people dwelled in tent and worshiped in tent for a long time. Here's, some of the, here's what we see going on in this passage today. We've got Jabal, who starts the, really the world of livestock and animal husbandry and uh, agrarian, which we get food. I mean, think about the, 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 really the things that are beginning here. We've got Jubal, who begins musical instruments. And so we've got the arts starting here in Genesis chapter 4. These parts of culture you still enjoy today. You know, going to see a good movie or hearing a good song. I mean, uh, Jubal kind of started this in culture. And then Tubal, Cain, he started uh, making really tools for the first time. So we've got technology and industry. They're really all the pieces of the world that many of you may even work in because it started in this early society. But isn't that like the world today if you think about it? I mean, all the modern cultural blessings we had that we couldn't think of life without, medicine, buildings, machinery, tools, computers, transportation, music, arts, customer donuts, you know, all those really things we really appreciate and love, we have them. And they come from people in the church, outside the church. Everybody produces culture, and that's good. But here's the problem and the paradox. This way of imaging God by building a culture apart from personally knowing God or without reference to God, it's disastrous, even as it brings good things to the world. Even as it brings good things. And so even good cultural products, what happens, they get misdirected, don't they? They get used in sinful ways. Just think of the computer. I mean, the blessing it's been to humanity, but the blight on uh, the, the sexual lives of men and women. Pornography. Here's a quote that, kind of, that sums this up. Strength can be used to plow, or to bludgeon a brother to death. Email can be used to encourage employees or to send death threats. Sex can bring intimacy between spouses or pornographic reenactments for mere pleasure. Creation through the exile and curses of Eden, which is where we're at, 
is fundamentally abnormal, sick, unhealthy, dysfunctional, maladjusted, pathological, sinful, broken, whatever adjective you want to use. That's the world we live in. Good things get misdirected against God and our fellow human beings made in God's image. And that's what we're going to see today. That's what we're looking at. The culture is rising in production and population, even as the lives of the individuals are falling apart. It's like a paradox, isn't it? God's giving so much good to the world, and yet the lives of these people we're going to see. So I want us to look. Let's look at the ongoing fall now as we've seen the rise and the symptoms we see in this newborn culture, okay? First one's this, no repentance. We're still seeing no repentance out of Cain and his descendants, this way of Cain. Let's go back up actually into the Cain story for a moment because it really does connect so closely with ours. Uh, and, and with Lamech, we're going to see in a bit. Remember from last week when Cain kills his younger brother Abel? We had this res- surprising response from God. Rather than just wipe him out, which we might expect, uh, when he kills his younger brother, what does God do? You remember he questioned him. Where's your brother? What have you done, Cain? And you know Cain's response, I'm not my brother's babysitter, is basically what he said. I'm not his babysitter. And I think what God wants us to see there, and what he even did with Adam and Eve, is that God is drawing, trying to draw Cain out and give him almost every, any, every possibility possible to repent. What have you done? I want us to understand this a little bit deeper because I think this is a, a big deal, this idea of repentance and, and what, how it relates to our sin. Martin Luther had a great way to describe uh, what sin is. I think we've used this before, but he described it as this. Sin is man or woman turned in upon himself. Think of arrows kind of going out. Turned in upon himself. This is how he described sin. And you can say this, we can say the word, oh, sin, 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 sin. But until you really get it like down to the heart level what's going on, sin is always, in other words, putting yourself first over other people or God turned in on yourself. It's putting yourself in the place of God, which we saw in the garden. And what's so helpful about this definition is that it reveals that not only we understand we do something wrong or we call bad or you call sin, we get that, but it goes deeper. If this is a deeper definition of sin, it even means that and reveals that even when you do good things, like love people, attend church, I mean, it could be read your Bible even. You can do it still for selfish reasons, for reputation, to look good, to look like everybody else, to keep people from talking about you, you know? You can still do it for selfish reasons. And that is what sin is. It's a human heart turned in on itself. It's a much deeper and really darker definition. So then if that's the case, repentance is a way of being drawn out of yourself pulled out of your, you know, your claustrophobic island of one, or rescued off of it, maybe. It means taking yourself out of the center and seeing God there. I mean, this word repentance, it is the thing. I mean, it is the most important thing of really Christianity, of the faith of Christians. It's turning from self to God. And that is what we would hope for Cain in his questioning from God. But that's not what happens. You remember last week, even in his sorrow for sin, it was all self-concerned. He didn't mention his dead brother. He didn't mention God. He said, yeah, this is too much for me. 
I can't handle this, God. This is too much for me. What you've given is too much for me, me, me. You hear it in his words. Is that the only type of repentance you've done with God? A sorrow for getting caught, you might call Cain. A sorrow that's sorrowful just in the hopes that God will set things right in your life again and give you the life you're hoping for. A a manipulating repentance. Or have you seen, I am desperately turned in on myself. I need someone to pull me out of it. That's true repentance. Cain hadn't changed. We see in his response, this is too much for me, me, me. The culture's rising as he's falling in lack of repentance. And here's our second one. Self-sufficiency and self-promotion we see in the early part of our our text from today. We we know he's going to continue, and it doesn't look like in the Bible we ever see any hints that Cain truly repents, but um, he's going to continue to sit in the throne of his heart. Where do we see that? How do we know that? Well, it's in our text. He's told by God he will wander the earth. It's part of his curse. What's the first thing he does? Goes out and plants a city right away. Look at verse 17 with me. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built the city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. I mean, Cain should have in this moment been on his face repenting to God. And instead, he's out making a name for himself in defiance to God. It's the way of Cain. To make a name for yourself, to, to promote self over others and God. But a lack of true repentance, if sin is being turned in on oneself, will of course produce self-sufficiency and self-promotion. It's all reliance on ourself. And the contrast from his curse to his defiant ambition and, and hubris should jar us. God said, you're going to wander the earth, Cain. And Cain said, no, I'm not. I'm going to build a city and slap my name on it. Sin is always at the root, and a lack of uh, uh, repentance is always at the root of destroying a life, destroying a a culture of production and population by self-promoting and self-sufficiency that says, I don't need God. I don't need God or anyone else. I mean, it's the reason humanity, too, continues to produce good things that still get misused for sinful purposes. I mean, God has always wanted us to produce culture, but with the purpose of blessing others and blessing the world, not serving ourselves. And there it is. I'm going to make a city. I'm calling it after my family name. We will live on. And our population Not only our products get ruined by it too. Let's take a look. See where this lands, this way of Cain. The next one's prone to oppression. This lack of repentance, a promotion of self, but not only that, but in that promotion of self, an oppression of others we see. We get to Lamech now, down the family line from Enoch. Ladies, isn't he dreamy, Lamech? (laughs) Let's take a look at Lamech. Verse 19, um, and Lamech took two wives. I like how Anna read that, just kind of like, okay, that's a little bit shocking there. Um, the name of one was Ada, the other, name of the other was Zillah. What? Two wives? We have the first mention of, I think I would call the oppressing of women 
through polygamy in God's word. And what did God tell? Remember, it's just, it's not much further down from Adam and Eve. What did he tell humanity's first parents? Here's what he said. Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, singular. And they, the two, shall become one flesh. Does the twelve become one flesh make much sense? No. Two becomes one. We're not in the garden anymore, are we? We are not. Polygamy was not God's design for marriage at all. And Jesus reaffirms it in the New Testament by going back to the garden. And yet all throughout the rest of the Old Testament, we have to wrestle with this. All throughout the rest of the Old Testament, that's pretty much what we have. We have polygamy. You know, and some people have tried to describe this as, you know, why did God not explicitly jump in? Maybe it's in the way he allowed for divorce because of the hardness of hearts, that he allowed this to go on. We don't quite know. But are we surprised that one primary way of rebelling against God is to distort and rewrite his design for marriage? Shouldn't be surprised. You know, Lamech's family, they did really great at handling their environment and the surrounding culture. I mean, they produced so many great things we already looked at, but they can't handle their own lives. They can't take care of their own life. Well, let's improve on marriage. Well, one wife was good, and uh, she's helpful, and she does this for me and that for me and this for me. Hey, how about two? And it sets a disastrous precedent throughout Genesis. I mean, all, we have to be honest. All the church early fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all polygamists. And if you read Genesis, we're going to see this throughout Genesis. If not explicitly, implicitly one of the themes throughout Genesis is its commentary on the disastrous effects of polygamy and on families, and in particular on women. Ask Hagar and Leah how it worked out for them, right? We're going to get to those stories. It's a disaster. It's a disaster and a distortion. It never works because it's culture building that's not self-sacrificing for the one other spouse. It's like hoarding as many as you can. It's a distortion of marriage and I think an oppression. I mean, you can hear it in Lamech's song. You can hear it in his song. Hear my voice, you wives. Listen to me. I mean, you can just hear it. It's the way of Cain. It's the way of Cain. But what else does the way of Cain produce? Not just only oppression of others, but death and vengeance. Let's take a look at it. Death and vengeance. You know, we got these names, remember, we can say them real fast, Jabel, Jubal, Tool, Jabel, Jubal, Tool, right? These three kids. And Jabel and Jubal, they kind of sound happy, don't they? In fact, Jubal kind of sounds like, you've heard the word Jubilee. It's even a Bible word, year of Jubilee, you know? But then we get to Tubal Cain. Now, if it would just say Tubal, there's a nice rhyme to it, isn't there? It's really good. Tubal Cain, why? Well, Tubal, on its own, uh, just means hammer. When you add the two together, though, what do we get? It's a really ominous turn here in the passage. It doesn't just mean hammer. It means sharp hammer or weapon. Or you might think of a, a sword. All of a sudden, you get Jabel, Jubal, sharp weapon. <laughs> That's a little jarring. Well, of course, look at verse 23 here. I mean, you can almost see Lamech like chest thumping and brandishing a sword and swinging it around from his wives, saying to them, listen, Aiden, Zilla, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. 
I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Wow. <laughs> really, Lamech? And this is, this is something to brag about? I mean, this is a woman's worst nightmare here. He's brandishing a sword, chest-thumping, uh, celebrating. I mean, tell me this is not a progression of the curse and of sin from Genesis 3.16. Do you remember? Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. That's what we see here, distortion. A taunt of violence, a, a song of vengeance sung to his wives? In Lamech, really? This sword song, this taunt of violence, in the original Hebrew, it actually is much worse than it looks here, even. It basically says that Lamech killed a lad, is the word. Uh, a boy. A boy. A young teen at best for, like, scratching him, bumping into him. You wronged me, you die, is Lamech's words. I mean, how did he think his wives would respond? Yes. This is, you know, Lamech, no. I mean, basically, he says, I killed a boy for tripping me with his skateboard. We'll put it in our language. The way of Cain is indifferent to death. That path, the way of Cain, whether it's in Cain's life or in our culture today, when you see indifference to death, it is the way of Cain. But think about it. That is our culture today. Our culture is obsessed with, with death and violence. You know, I'm not saying you should never see anything that has any bit of violence in it. It moves stories along and it's plot line. I get that. But when you come to something like, I mean, think about the hardcore, you would call it violence porn of a, throw like, a show like Game of Thrones. I mean, think about that. That's like hardcore violence porn. Uh, Game of Thrones. Or our dark obsession with zombies, that our culture is obsessed with zombies right now. That's the way of Cain. An indifference or obsession or celebrating or boasting of death. Lamech's boasting and he's proud. This is not the idea of, hey, I'm here to serve the world in the city of my great-grandfather, Enoch. But this is twisted by sin. It's what we get in culture. Misdirected culture, distorted marriage, violence, and revenge here. Did you hear Lamech's words? Revenge that is 77-fold. It's basically a way of saying, if I'm wronged, I will never forgive anyone for any wrong they ever do to me. That's Lamech's words. How's that going to work out in life? If every one of us, I'm never forgiving anyone for any wrong they ever do to me. I mean, get, we get here and we think, is this what God had in mind from the garden? And when he set up Adam and Eve in the garden, be fruitful and multiply. Is Lamech the kind of citizen he was thinking of? Or is this what he had in mind when he sent his people off into exile in Babylon? Now look what he said. When he sent them off, we see the scripture coming up. He said, build houses and live in them. This is now in exile in Babylon. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage. They may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you'll find your welfare. Of course the way of Cain and Lamech is not what he intended. But it's the worst of culture produced apart from God. Because he wants us to do it. He wants us to, uh, here it is, uh, populate and produce in Jeremiah. So what does he intend then? What does he intend? If the way of Cain looks like that, 
We're going to call our second way this. What does he want for us? The church, his people. We're going to call it the way of grace. And a real simple way to define, describe what happens in the rest of the passage, a church that serves while it proclaims. A people that serve while they proclaim. A way of giving our life for the benefit of others. A, a different song than Cain's. A different song than Lemek's violent taunt. A church that serves while it proclaims. So let's look at, we looked at the examples and the symptoms of the way of Cain. Let's look at the way of grace. And what should God's people be like? What should be our flavor, our aroma, our song? Here's the first one. Well, it's similar. Production and population, but to serve. Production and population, but to serve. From the, from the Jeremiah passage, we just read. To the ongoing line of Adam, a new child we see today here. God doesn't just swoop us from the world as soon as we accept Jesus. Do you notice that? I mean, he, he doesn't just accept Jesus and whoo, you're magically gone to the place where he is. We're called to live to remain, to live as a, you might call it a city amongst the city or a church amongst the world, giving to that same culture as we produce and populate like them, but with an entirely different motive, to serve, to bless, not to oppress or distort, but to serve and, and bless. That's why we're not swooped out of here or taken out. You know, one of the most inspiring, or, or surprise and inspiring, well, it was too, but surprising things about moving here from California to Oregon was my wife Robin's new love of gardening. It was actually surprising. It really was. I mean, a couple reasons. One, her mom did say, like, you were my last of my daughters. I thought we'd enjoy gardening. I'm like, well, oh, she is. <laughs> but also the fact, you know, you move from a place where you get shamed for using water to wash your car you know, uh, you come to, it's the last thing on your mind to come to a place where you move and uh, gardening, it's the last thing on your mind. Well, maybe if you grew up here too, you're probably thinking, well, yeah, I mean, plant some seeds, you water it, everybody has a garden, we just do it. And maybe even take it for granted. But I didn't because I didn't come to a place where you could really even do that. But the reality of a garden in my backyard has been really refreshingly surprising and life-giving. You want to make a salad? Go out and pick it. <laughs> you want to make salsa? I mean, I love salsa. you got all the ingredients in your backyard. It's there. You've got it. This is why the first job was gardening. <laughs> the way the church is to live and work in the world is like a life-giving garden. That's us. This is the opposite of Cain and Lamech's culture of power and exploiting and making a name to my, for myself. This is my life to serve others. It's a picture of a garden. It's life-giving. It's food. It fills you up. It doesn't demand anything from you. Actually, it all comes from the sky, the water. You know? That's the picture. We're part of this grand story to be lived outside of these walls. Do you see that? Okay, let's just talk about this for a minute. Let's talk about this. You were saved, if you're a follower of Christ today, not just to get your individual ticket 
to heaven. I mean, it's not less than that. It is that. But it's so much more than that. You were saved to also enter into as a character, a player, in the second half of this story. Our life is so much more than that. To be part of that, the church on mission for the world to serve while proclaiming the gospel, while producing culture and populating, to live in the world. But to be a part of that, creating a life-giving culture that's being restored and one day will be entirely restored. We point to that for people with our lives and our families and our work and the way we treat our neighbors and even our enemies. Remember what we used to ask this? It was like last year we used to ask the question, which is kind of what I'm getting at here. What is your salvation for? Remember, we're not beamed up like by Scotty like in the Enterprise. As soon as we come, become saved, you're here. No, God says you're here. What is it for? It was a question, uh, it was, I think it was Jeff Warren that probably had the most impact on it. He, he brought that with me seven or eight times probably after that. I can't get that question out of my mind because it points to the fact that it's more than just getting my ticket to heaven. It's living as a citizen of the kingdom in the way of Cain. That's what it is. It's so, it's so radical and so full of life. Do you see yourself as a follower of Jesus as that important? Because you are. You are that important. Do you see yourself as a player in the story of redemption and restoration? You're a character, not a bit part even, or a walk-on. You're part of the kingdom. Well, how do we know that? I could just say that, but how do we know that? Well, the story goes on after Lamech, doesn't it? The story goes on with a new name and a new purpose, we see, and a new son. Let's look at it. We know this is true because God doesn't just say, you know, Adam and Eve, whisk them away when this thing falls apart. No, he begins a new line with a new promise. Look at 25 and 26. And Adam knew his wife again. She bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me, which is what Seth means, appointed, another offspring, seed is the word, Instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also was, a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is exactly what God does. He creates a new line through grace. And Eve is very obviously aware of that. Because she calls his name Seth, which means he was appointed. He was given. He's a gift. Isn't that grace? He is given to us by God. You know, Eve is not. We see the great faith of Eve again. And she calls it a seed again, another seed. Remember Genesis 3.15? The one that would come, her seed that would crush the serpent? She uses those two words. Eve has great faith. She's not selfishly naming a city after herself. She's by faith naming a new seed, a new way of grace for the world. The line of Seth now that would crush the serpent. That way was appointed, Seth, appointed, gifted, graced by God. You see the difference in the way of grace versus the way of Cain? I'll make a city, call it Enoch. Ah, Seth from God. A new way. And this is to be our mission here. And outside these walls, we live not to make a name for ourselves, but we live with the name of Jesus stamped upon us to make his name great. That's why we're here. That's our purpose. I want to be like him, and I want others to know about him. Seth, Seth, not 
Enoch, my city. That's why sometimes I've called our church, we're a gospel outpost. We're here like a beacon on a hill, a city on a hill, a church that needs to be living in the community for the community. And the appointed line goes on. Enosh is born. And you're still here today. We're still here today. And now at this time, really interesting, they begin to call on the name of Yahweh the Lord. Which truly just means they began really to proclaim him and proclaim God in the midst of the way of Cain. Is what they did. So rather than look like a culture of unrepentance and self-promotion, what should we look like as we do that? We respond not in vengeance and unforgiveness, but repentance and forgiveness. This is how we're called to respond. We become a people of repentance and forgiveness. And it really is this lack of repentance and forgiveness. It's at the root of so much of our self-promotion, so much of our self-sufficiency, so much of our inability and lack of desire to forgive. What do I mean by that? Well, when someone accuses me, I could say you, but I'll take this one. How, how do I, what's my internal temptation, my desire? How, how do I like and do I really want to respond? Yeah, well, you did that. <laughs> or what are you talking about? Come on, are you serious? What? Or how dare you? I mean, come on, seriously? Or sometimes I can't bear it. I'm, just, I'm walking out of here. I'm, I can't bear it. I'm leaving. Who's that sound like? Cain? <laughs> this is too much for me. I'm out of here. Sometimes I respond like Lamech and Cain. And when we do, it destroys relationships. It destroys families. And because of that, what does it do? It destroys a culture. If that's the case, if repentance is that important, Bethany Church, not just Bethany, the church should be the place where we work to cultivate, culture it, repentance and forgiveness. And that should be the air we breathe the water we drink, the words we speak, so that when somebody comes to accuse us, we don't instantly just say, how dare you? But we say, maybe. (laughs) Maybe we can just say, maybe. Yeah, there might be some truth in that. Maybe you're right. Or, you know what, even if you're off this time and you called me rude, I know I'm a rude person in general anyways at times, so there's truth in it, even if not in this specific moment. That's hard. That's really hard. So how do we get the power to do that? How do we get the strength to be a church who serves unselfishly with a spirit of repentance and forgiveness? Where does that come from? Does Lamech's taunt, revenge 77-fold, sound like something else? Does it sound like anything you've ever heard before? Do you remember Jesus in the New Testament? Peter comes to him and says, how often should I forgive and be a repentant type of person and a forgiving person? What does Jesus say? 70 times 7 or 77. It's kind of hard to translate. You know what Jesus is doing? doing, I think in that moment, he's thinking of Lamech's words and he's he's undoing Lamech's song. He's writing a new song for us, a new way, the way of grace, the way of mercy, the way of forgiveness and, and repentance. It's a new song. It's our final Characteristic of the new way of grace today. A new song. A gospel song of forgiveness and grace and mercy. The end of human anger. The end of need for revenge. The end of unrepentance. The end of unforgiveness. The end of selfishness and the way into service and mission. 
is for the world to, for us to see and believe and accept what Cain and Lamech never did, that God is gracious and merciful and forgiving. And see Jesus. Rather than one picking up a sword over us to sing and taunt us with death and vengeance, which he could have done because we deserve, we see Jesus laying down everything and his life even for us. That's what you got to see. He had every right to give us what we deserve, pick up that sword, sing a taunting song over us of death and revenge, and instead he allows himself to be killed for less than what Lamech got, a little scratch. He was totally innocent. The one true innocent martyr. For nothing, he became the innocent victim. And in that moment, he becomes that curse for us, the curse we've been talking about. He took on Cain's curse, curse and punishment that was too great for him. You're going to talk about it in your life groups this week. He took on Adam and Eve's curse. Jesus took on your curse too. So your life could become about loving, serving, and giving up and not having to make a name for yourself but for others. That's why he did it. That's why he still leaves us here. And to the degree that you get that and hold it and cherish it and bring it in your, to your life, individuals, or Bethany Church, we'll live a new song. We will live a new way that the world cannot help but notice, that the way of Cain can't stop and go, what is going on with those people? It's exciting. We will live the way of grace. There was that simple way, a church that serves while it proclaims the great name of Jesus. Would you pray with me? Lord, let us be a people that live out of the song of Jesus. Let us be a people that live out of the way of grace. A people who realize and understand the only true innocent sufferer who could have demanded vengeance and payment upon us has given us salvation. He didn't hold a sword over our head and taunt us but laid down his life. God, let us live out of that way. Let, us, let someone find even new faith in that song today, the gospel song. And let it build us into disciples that see our salvation as not less than, but even more than just our individual saving, but that we could be a new song for the life of the world. Continue to transform Bethany Church, I pray. In Christ's name, amen. Please stand with me as